1: Welcome to another edition of Sideline Sanity with me, Michelle Tafoya, and we would love for you to subscribe. If you've got that subscribe button right in front of you, please just press it. We wanna bring you great content every day that we bring you this podcast, and we think we do that. So please subscribe and you know, hang with us every day. We'd love it. Today, we love it because we're talking about a topic that is, I think, crucially important, and it is the 1619 Project. And why do I think this is crucially important? because I disagree with the 1619 Project, and many historians, economists, and others disagree as well. It is formulated on a lot of flimsy stuff. There are holes in it that a running back could run through, and yet it continues to be placed into classrooms. It is a Hulu project now, a mini series, a documentary series, and a number of writers over the National Review, among others, have have looked at this very, very closely, have done the fact-checking that the New York Times refused to do on this initial project, and they have exposed all of the faults with the 1619 Project. Today our guest is Philip Magnus. He is an economist, and his article is entitled The 1619 Project's Confusion on Capitalism. The Hulu series has made it abundantly clear that history is no longer the primary purpose of the 1619 Project, assuming it ever was. Philip Magnus, I could go on and on and tell you about all the accolades this man has received, but let's just suffice it to say for now, he writes for the National Review, he has delved deeply into this project, he's a respected economist, and he joins us next.
0: For nearly three decades, she's reported the action from the sidelines. She started very young.
1: Well, just before you and I came on camera, Phil, you gave me permission to call you Phil. I'll say that first. And secondly, we were talking about the breathtaking speed with which the 1619 Project made its way from the front page of the New York Times to the classrooms in America. And as you point out in a a number of pieces at the National Review, this study, this project, I don't really know what to call it. We'll call it a project. That's what she calls it. And really it would be almost unfair to call it anything else because it lacks so much necessary foundation. Then it turns into a Hulu, uh docu series. And I know that you've looked at it closely. And one of these segments that you really hone in on is the way that Hannah Nicole Jones describes, or Nicole, Hannah Jones, those two first names always trip mm-hmm. me up. I apologize. The confusion on capitalism in her project. So, Where do we even begin with this to make it easy for people to understand how wrong they get what capitalism is?
2: Yeah. Well, I think the starting point is this consideration of what the 1619 Project is even aiming to do. And it started as this journalism venture that's moved into the classrooms. It came with a prepackaged K-12 curriculum that the New York Times has pushed. And now it's a Hulu series that's connected to that. Uh, But the problem is they undertook a study of the economics of slavery, which is an important historical topic. I don't want anyone to be confused about it. This is something we should absolutely study. But they did so without any understanding of the economics of slavery themselves. Uh, in fact, the main consultants they used for this segment of the 1619 Project were non-experts that had zero qualifications or credentials in there. And then they've since backfilled it by some really fringe kind of cranky Marxist style um, economists and uh, economic advisors that they brought in to uh, try to bolster up that original defect
1: there has been backlash for sure i mean you're not the first person to notice these errors these these soft sort of issues with this yeah. maybe they're bigger yeah. than soft but th- these problems these holes in the theory how is this thing still standing given what you've just described. Well, at this point,
2: it is a conscious decision of the New York Times to ignore expertise, to ignore factual corrections. And I've had direct exchanges with the editor of the New York Times Magazine on this issue, especially over the capitalism point. I was one of the first people that called attention to some major errors in this capitalism essay, uh, one of them being uh, the, the author Matthew Desmond had misrepresented another person's work on the growth of the uh, – uh, the cotton economy in the antebellum south of the United States uh, had basically misinterpreted some statistics, pointed them to the correct error or the correct interpretation of them, and they refused to do anything. In another one, they were claiming that Microsoft Excel spreadsheets were descended from plantation accounting books, which sounds like a farcical claim on its surface. It turns out this had been from a misreading of, a, uh, of another source. You move to the Hulu series now. They're making the same claim that Amazon.com warehouses today are the lineal descendants of the slave plantations. Uh, so it's really far fetched notions of this uh, this kind of intellectual genealogy that, that doesn't even hold up to minimal scrutiny, and yet they refuse to do anything to correct it. Not only that, they double down on it and just find another example to import into the same stale metaphor that they were using in the first version.
1: Stale metaphor is a good description. I mean, the Amazon um, comparison is is striking. And I it, for me, as a former NFL reporter, I can't help but compare it to Colin Kaepernick comparing the combine to slave trade that, you know, all these white owners come in and examine them. The problem there is Colin... No one is forced into the NFL combine and players are paid quite handsomely for the job that they do. So don't uh, please um, offend or, you know, reduce slavery to something that akin Let's to, to the you. NFL. Yeah. So I know in the Hulu uh, project, the Hulu version of this, they show these sort of juxtaposed images of, you know, cotton picking and these Amazon warehouses where they're packing and doing the things that need to be done in order to deliver Amazon goods. I I don't know how you can even compare those two. How do they try to get away with this and why is it unsuccessful? Well, it's propaganda
2: in the way that they've used the videography in the series. But what it really comes down to is their version of of capitalism, their definition of capitalism, which they waver and fluctuate around, but they ultimately settle on something to say that basically capitalism is inherently exploitative of workers. It's the exploitation of workers. And they go to this Marxist historian, Robin D.G. Kelly, uh, who has some really fringe out there theories about the history of the civil rights movement and what he calls racial capitalism. Uh, But, you know, it's from the very, very far edges of the academic left. Uh, And his his entire argument is that anything that is a uh, transactional relationship between an employer and a laborer is necessarily exploitative. And because of that, Exploitation exists in free labor. It also exists in slavery. The two are, are effectively united in that sense, uh, which is, you know, it's an inversion of the history of the abolition movement, which was all about free, uh, free soil, free labor, free men. You know, the the, the the classic slogans of the abolition movement were to point out that the slave system of the South was antithetical to capitalism.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, again, it's it's stunning to me how they get away with this and how this, you know for her own purposes, for their own purposes, which I think are ultimately to influence a whole new generation of people. And it's terrifying to me that the educational uh, elitists or whatever you want to call it – the the intelligentsia in America has decided this is a good thing to teach and when it's so flawed. So when you try to explain capitalism to people in a a very simple way, I mean, I think I know what it is, but it seems to me there's some debate on this topic lately in America and it's, it's striking. So how would you define capitalism and compare it to the way that the 1619 project tries to?
2: Well, I think capitalism is mostly a descriptive term for Free and voluntary exchanges of goods and services in exchange for payments. Uh, it is also associated with uh, certain historical institutions that have emerged. So robust systems of a rule of law, property rights, contract enforcement, uh, basic mechanisms. It's descriptive not of a system that's imposed from above, but it's descriptive of a system of exchange that basically emerges spontaneously when the right institutions are in place and when the right cu- cultural norms uh, exist to basically support this type of exchange. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, we think of economic exchange as something that is not directed by the state or a central entity. It's directed by individual consumer preferences. Uh, and everyone else has a different preference than I do on on what I desire to spend my money on, uh, and vice versa. You know, it's uh, it's uh, very individualistic and voluntary. And yet, the way the 1619 Project approaches it, to, to, to contrast it, they take it almost in the Marxian framework. They view capitalism as like this imposed system of exploitation uh, that the, the elite, the haves, uh, the bourgeois have put in place over the proletariat. And this causes constant strife and struggle over material resources. And, uh, you know, the progression of history is to be toward uh, a proletarian revolution in the Marxian system. Uh, There's twist on it, and this comes out of Matthew Desmond's 1619 Project essay. He asserts that slavery is a disruption in proletarian class consciousness, and it's the reason why Karl Marx's predicted revolution doesn't come about in the United States. And he says almost that exactly in the book version of his essay. Uh, so you have a really tw- weird, twisted, ideological version of capitalism at the core of the 1619 Project's narrative, and it's not in sync at all with how, say, a, an economist or, or most Americans would even use the term.
1: On this show, I like to promote a feeling of strength within every individual, like you are really in control of your own life if you want to be. And one of the things you might need to think about is what are all your backup plans for when things really hit the fan? I mean, things have already hit the fan in this country. We see people in food shelf lines and all the rest. But what if things really hit the fan? You might want food stored in your pantry, in your basement. Let me tell you about Four Patriots. 4patriots.com can help you create your own backup plan, a stockpile of the best-selling foods. We're talking good for 25 years, super survival food, hand-packed in a family-owned facility right here in the USA, giving jobs to over 200 Americans. They've got these sturdy kits. They're compact. They're waterproof. They easily stack their lunches, breakfast, dinners. And right now, you can go to 4patriots.com, use the code Michelle with one L to get 10% off your first purchase on anything in the store, including this. Three month survival kit. You'll get their famous year long guarantee after you order, plus free shipping on orders over 97 bucks. And they're called Four Patriots because a portion of every sale is donated to charities who support our veterans and their families. So go to fourpatriots.com. That's the number fourpatriots.com, code Michelle, M I C H E L E, to get 10% off. Fourpatriots.com, code Michelle. Start building your own stockpile, your own backup plan today. There is a term, NHC, New History of Capitalism, that provides some of the underpinnings for this 1619 Project's arguments on capitalism. <laughs> Whenever I see a new history, I think, I, I don't know, history is a, is a grouping of facts. Um, how can there be a new history of capitalism? What is this this school, this new history of capitalism that they cite?
2: Yeah, so the New History of Capitalism, it's a school of historiography scholars that work on on topics that emerged in the probably the early 2010s, kind of burst onto the scene at Harvard and Cornell and Brown and some of these elite universities as a way of reinvestigating and reimagining the economic dimensions of our past with a focus on slavery. Uh, so it burst onto the scene promising to offer a new interpretation of the economics of slavery. Uh, in particular, they say it's wedded to capitalism. Uh, they also stressed things like cotton as a major driver of American industrialization. Uh, and they presented themselves basically as a corrective to what they saw as faults and historical understandings of slavery. But the problem is the novelty was uh, falsely claimed. Uh, really what you see in the new history of capitalism school are people that almost unwittingly reinvigorated and rediscovered a very old idea, an idea that in fact dates to the 1850s. This is the King Cotton theory of economic development. And if you know from uh Basic, even high school uh, history textbooks, King Cotton Theory, was the economic um, argument behind the Confederacy, behind uh, the southern states that uh, seceded and lost the Civil War. It also turns out to be uh, a gross distortion of economic reality as we saw during the Civil War itself. The South was walloped by the North's industrial prowess. Uh, it was economically a backwater compared to what the North was able to achieve during the American Civil War. So uh, you have a real-time demonstration that King Cotton theory was wrong. Cotton was not the main mechanism that uh, that led to American economic development.
1: You know, it goes back to there's just so many tentacles here that it, it's it's hard for me to to stay centered because when you mention one thing, another thing comes to mind in this in this project. But this project also kind of looks to this case in London. And I'm going back to another one of your pieces where a slave asked for his freedom. How would you nutshell that story for our listeners? Yeah. So it's actually
2: a great moment in the history of the abolition movement. There was a um, a ship captain uh, by the name of of, uh, Stuart who travels from North America over to London. And he brings his slave, James Somerset, on board uh, the ship the ship's docked in London, and a group of abolitionists uh, find out that the slave is being held captive on board the ship. They go down to the court and they realize that the laws of England proper did not encompass slavery. There was no statute on the books that said slavery is permitted in in England. Uh, So they file a writ of habeas corpus, the judge reviews the case, and the judge grants Somerset his freedom on the basis that slavery did not exist there. Uh, so it's a great moment in the history of the abolition movement. It's, in fact, the same legal strategy that the abolitionists tried to use in the Dred Scott case uh, in the United States. Uh, so right on the eve of the Civil War, uh, this is a, a very proud and distinguished intellectual legacy. The issue here is the 1619 Project claims that the Somerset v. Stewart case signified that Britain was about to abolish slavery in the colonies. That's not true at all. Uh, what was really happening is just a very nascent abolition movement in London. And in fact, when word of the Somerset versus Stewart case gets across the Atlantic to North America, uh, the main reactions are not Southern slave owners saying, oh no, they're going to take our slaves away. The main reaction that we have on record is from a, uh, uh, you know, a, a fairly obscure little figure named Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> Actually, he writes down a, a lengthy letter Uh, And it's an attack on the crown calling them out for hypocrisy. He says that the the great fault of this case is it doesn't go far enough. It only frees one slave. We need to free them all.
1: That's Benjamin Franklin, folks. He was white, if I recall. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to point that out. I mean, I think people forget that there were so many white abolitionists. There were so many white men who died to, to get this to happen, to get, you know, the civil war, I, I one of the things that, that c- comes just screechingly at me out of this 1619 project is their easy twist on history. they the ease yeah. with which they misstate the facts, the ease with which they misinterpret uh, facts and figures and statistics and ideas and make it into this. Wow. Look at this new school of thought and we're disseminating it as though it is fact. I can't recall another time. Now, you know, I haven't been around for the whole length of our country, uh, uh, the country's existence. But was there, can you think of another time when someone, some group, some movement tried to distort history to this extent, to the extent that the 1619 Project says the Revolutionary War was to preserve slavery? right.
2: Right. I mean it's unprecedented in the modern times although it does repeat a lot of the errors that we find in things that are now discarded as junk history of the past. Uh, the one I keep going back to there are distinct parallels between the arguments the 1619 project uses and the arguments that slave owners used to defend slavery in the eve of the American Civil War. So the King Cotton thesis is lifted almost directly out of that. You also have a legal interpretation of the U.S. Constitution that uh, the 1619 Project is very much in line with Roger Taney's decision in Dred Scott, uh, which basically declares that slavery is protected by the Constitution. Remember, we have that case on the eve of the Civil War because this is a contested notion, and the 1619 Project writes out the entire other side of that case. Uh, It's one of the reasons it brings about the Civil War is because the country is divided on it. Uh, Half the country is not buying into Roger Taney's argument when the court issues this decision. They're furious. They're up in arms about it. Uh, So you have that type of attention playing out. But the 1619 Project, what they're doing is they're taking these old, bad arguments that were used on the pro-slavery side. They're asserting them as truth and then using that to evaluate the entire American system uh, from a judgmental perspective and saying, well see it's pro-slavery.
1: System is a fascinating word and it leads to systemic and systematic yes. and all of these other derivatives and it's it's um, when you when you can take one moment, one side, one part of history and claim that an entire country is based on this particular thing, it's anecdotal it's yes. not it, yeah. it's not it's not correct and and again i i feel and i was talking to my producer about this earlier i feel like uh people are just too they don't have enough time to really get into the details right they don't have enough time to waste on really discovering what truth is and so they kind of go oh this is a neat shiny object over here let's look at the 1619 project it was produced by the new york times that's big time that's credible that's holy cow, where, yeah. where are we going with these kinds of narratives? Well,
2: it, yeah, and it represents a breakdown in the media of uh, even being able to do its basic jobs of fact-checking, of, uh, of using credible sources. And this started the day the 1619 Project was published in 2019. Uh, there were criticisms that emerged. I was one of the first critics out the gate on the economic side, but others looked at this claim about the American Revolution and said, wait a minute, your facts are wrong. Yeah. And then what we find out... Uh, about three or four months later, lo and behold, the New York Times' own fact checker was a historian by the name of Leslie Harris at Northwestern University. She breaks her silence and says, before this was published, the paper contacted me to fact check this claim, and I warned them against making it, and they ignored me. That was basically the revelation that she offered, uh, so, which was really kind of stunning because it shows that the project had an ideological narrative. Right. It's continued to cling to uh Without any regard or consideration for scholarly history, for the process of correction, for the process of discovery that takes place there through academic dialogue, Uh, it's it's all about maintaining a single narrative. And the further we've gotten into the Hulu series and the book version and all these other derivatives, uh, they've doubled and tripled down on the errors. Uh, So they've actually made the content worse. Uh, they haven't taken the opportunity to do some introspection and correction that would be necessary uh, that they've actually tried to bolster up the uh, the same problems with even worse scholarship and uh, and even flimsier claims
1: yeah it just undercuts the whole project I mean I think if there were some sincerity about it if there yeah. were some you know some points to be made uh, then we might all be open to that I think Absolutely. that everyone was very curious about this when it first but then when when it first came out and and it it, it kind of its foundation was that the founding of America was when the first slaves arrived. Right. And and this notion too, that slavery is unique to America and that no one of a different pigmentation was ever a slave. In other words, I mean, we've had Irish slaves, we've had slaves all worldwide from time evermore. And, and there was another thing that you said in the in the article that compare that talks about capitalism. That because cotton was sold outside of regions where slavery was legal, yeah, it, it therefore somehow made. I, I, I want you to to elaborate on this because right. you did it so eloquently. But you then drew that comparison to, you know, there's slavery in China, right? And we do a lot of trade with China, right? And so does. How how would you describe that comparison? Please, please do a better job than I just tried to do.
2: Well, well, it it gets back (laughs) to the flimsiness and fluidity of their definition of capitalism. They try to reduce capitalism to any economic exchange. And this is a point that I I, I try to draw out at um, almost every opportunity. Um, You know, accounting is not unique to slavery. They used accounting in the Soviet gulags. That didn't make the gulags capitalism. Uh, They used accounting in the ancient world. That didn't make the ancient world a capitalistic society. Um, in fact, uh, what they are talking about as market exchange is just something that's uh, a condition of human behavior. Even in the least free societies in history, people still figure out ways to trade. So, like in prisoner of war camps; they trade cigarettes, they trade food items. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is economic exchange because it's you know it's basically human nature to do that. So, when the sixteen nineteen project says, "Well," Other societies in other countries in the world that didn't have slavery used cotton from the South to make their textiles. Uh, they're, they're basically engaging in a fallacy here uh, that would be the same as uh, if we declared communist China today a capitalist society from the fact that it has exchanged with the United States. We declare Venezuela a capitalist society because it trades or at one time traded oil with other uh, parts of the world. Uh, so, so these are, are basically farcical. Uh, reductionism that's at play here in the way the 1619 project is using exchange as a stand-in for capitalism. Uh, but they really don't have any other answer because, uh, uh, you know, their definition is just so askew.
1: When you Just from a macro uh, perspective here for a moment, when you look at this whole project, of the 1619 project, and, and from your standpoint as an economist, yeah. and knowing what you know, and doing the research that you've done, how damaging is this project and its its permeation through society right now to to <laughs> to the way we perceive ourselves in this country
2: yeah well, it has undermined the credibility of not only journalism but the academic history profession which uh has seen itself as being. Uh, in the purpose of promoting a very specific ideological narrative. Uh, they see this is the ideologically fashionable thing to do. It's the correct political argument to make, even if the facts are a little bit flawed. So therefore, we overlook the flaws. Uh, what this does is it advances a very short-term political argument that may be suited to elections in 2023 or 2024, but for the long-term study of the past, uh, you know, it's it's irreparable damage. Uh, I see the 1619 Project as something that's going to be viewed by historians decades from now as a moment in history where our basic mechanisms of fact-checking and evidentiary standards broke down because there was a political objective that superseded those. Uh, So that's the type of damage that I see happening.
1: Do you think that the 1619 Project has led to this seemingly accelerated ambition of reparations?
2: Absolutely. And they've stated this as the goal. So I just published a piece the other day uh, through AIER's website where we do some calculations on the reparations proposal they put forward in the series. Uh, So they claim that reparations in order to make uh, amends for slavery would need to be in the amount of 13 trillion with the T dollars uh, in public expenditures out of the federal government. And whenever you ask them the question, this Nicole Hannah-Jones has been confronted with this many times, well, how do we pay for that? $13 trillion doesn't just magically appear. Uh, She has no viable answer. Uh, She won't commit to saying, well, we're going to raise taxes. She won't commit to saying, well, maybe we take it from Social Security, Medicare, and all the other things the government does. Although when you're in that dollar amount, that's the necessary trade-off you have to do. Uh, She basically says we we should just debt issue it. Uh, And when we... Examine what a $13 trillion injection into the money supply would uh, would be. You think inflation's been bad over the last year? Uh, I mean, this is off to the races. This is uh, Venezuela-style or Zimbabwe-style uh, spending that could lead to an inflationary crisis unparalleled in American history if they went that route. And that seems to be the one that they're intimating they want to
0: go.
1: Well, we see certain certainly efforts in Northern California and other exactly. places yep. like that to to make this happen, and it, it it's again, it's very foundationally, it's very flimsy. It's yep. and um, everyone likes free money. Everyone likes free money, but it, exactly. it, if people would just stop and look at the ramifications, I think we might might hesitate a little bit more, and I and I hope that. Sane minds like yours, Phil, can help us do that. And I'd love to have you back because you you write on so many topics that are fascinating to me and that are important and that you've just made very simple uh, to listen to. So thank you very much for being here.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
1: We will have him back to talk about more than just the 1619 Project. In the meantime, as I always say, be brave, do good. Thanks for listening to Sideline Sanity.